quick warning. This episode features discussion of suicide. We advise you, our listener, to practice self-care and look after yourself in whatever way you need to. It's Piece by Piece, the musical theatre talk show podcast. Welcome to part one of our discussion of Fun Home. Our guests are Kaiser Hamelin, Lisa Crone, Jenna Russell and Janine Tesori. First, please welcome your host, Joe Bunker. Hello and welcome to Piece by Piece, the musical theatre talk show where we unpack iconic musicals with conversation, songs and quizzes. I'm Joe Bunker and today I'm joined by four incredible guests to explore one of the most astonishing musicals of this century, Lisa Crone and Janine Tesori's Fun Home. Once again, we are recording this remotely and welcoming our guests from both sides of the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, my first guest played the role of Alison in the UK premiere of Fun Home. and I first saw her on stage playing Petra in a little night music at the Menier Chocolate Factory. Since then, she was the first Scandinavian Elle Woods in Legally Blonde, Charity in Sweet Charity, and she played the title role in Violet at the Charing Cross Theatre. It's the outrageously versatile Kaiser Hammerland. Hi, Kaiser. Hi. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm all right, you know. I'm okay. I'm keeping my spirits up, um, yeah. or trying to. Um, living at large in lockdown London. I love it. Amazing. And you went straight from Fun Home into another Janine Tesori show. You did the double bill. I'm going to play Shrek next. <laughs> it's a shoe in Well, it's fantastic to have you here. Thank you so much. Another star of the London production of Fun Home is one of this country's most beloved theatre actresses. Uh, her gifts as a musical actor have seen her particularly associated with Stephen Sondheim musicals. She starred in Merrily We Roll Along, Into the Woods, Twice, and of course, Sunday in the Park with George, for which she received a Tony nomination and an Olivier Award. It's Jenna Russell. Hi, Jenna. Hello. Hello, hello. It's so lovely to see you here. And you look like you're in a child's den made of bedsheets. It's fantastic. It's like a panic room. I'm, <laughs> I, I did a Radio 4 drama and my ever-brilliant other half, Ray, built me a little studio. It's great, but I, I, you know, this plus the menopause, it's not, it's not great. It's not great. <laughs> I love it. I, I feel like your parents could call you in for tea at any point. So uh, I'll ignore we'll... them. I'll ignore them. <laughs> <laughs> and what should you be doing at the moment? If you weren't here talking to me, what would you uh, be up to? Oh, if life were not in lockdown, I would have just finished PF and I would have been started rehe starting rehearsals for Hello Dolly. But she's not. But she's not. Um, I'm at home doing subversive cross-stitch and looking after my 11-year-old <laughs> daughter, which is brilliant. But that keeps you busy. And Dolly will return, we hope. I hope so. I'm probably going to be too old, but, um, you know, it's a big stage and I believe that white light does a lot of good. Absolutely. Uh, and I hadn't clocked until yesterday that you and Kaiser were actually in Sunday in the Park with George at the same time. We were. That's so yeah. cool. So Fun Home was actually your reunion. It was. It was our time to reignite our love, wasn't it? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> now, uh, for those of you who don't know, Fun Home opened off-Broadway at the Public Theatre in 2013. It went on to win a host of awards, as well as being a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. After it transferred to Broadway in 2015, it won five out of the 12 Tonys for which it was nominated, including Best Musical, Best Book and Best Score. I am positively giddy to introduce our final guests today, who are the writers of Fun Home and the winners of those awards, Lisa Crone and Janine Tesori. First up, we have the incredible actor, playwright, lyricist, librettist. She has so many titles. 
It's Lisa Crone. Hello. How are you? I'm very good. As of uh, about a minute and a half ago, I have decided to dedicate my life to subversive cross-stitch. <laughs> and why wouldn't you? I think we all should. My path seems so much clearer than it has in a very long time now. Thank you, Jenna. There could be a whole breakaway movement on the back of this, Jenna. <laughs> It helps, believe me, it helps. (laughs) I'm sure it does. Now, Lisa, you've been devising, writing and performing theatre for for years now, but I believe Fun Home was your first musical, is that right? It was, yes. What made you take that leap? Uh, Naivete, (laughs) uh, but also the great good fortune to take that leap with the uh, master of the forum, Janine Tesori. And how did it come about? Were you working on the project before Janine was involved or did you embark on it together? The material had been um, uh, given to me to work on and I worked on it for a year trying to understand what what a dramatic structure might be. And then I had a lot of idea for what songs might be. And then I stalked Janine to come in on it. (laughs) And um, very fortunately for me, she said yes. And uh, then, then we continued to work together on it for about six more years. Wow, fantastic. And what a writing partner to have. The incomparable Janine Tesori has composed the scores for musicals including Violet, Thoroughly Modern Millie, Shrek, Caroline or Change, and the recent Pulitzer Prize finalist, Soft Power. That's an amazingly diverse list of shows in terms of subject matter and uh, musical styles, <laughs> Janine. How do you go about choosing what you devote your time and energy to? I really feel like um, I want to tell the stories that I have not heard in the musical lexicon. Because of the way that musical theatre has been organised as an American art form, it of course follows the organisation of the way that power is in this country. And it also has dictated which stories deserve to be down. I call it down F center, which in the, the F is a big curse word. So I, I really am interested in stories that I myself should know, um, that I feel like have not been presented, uh, especially from the, the, the point of view of the, fem, the female perspective, um, the, the story of the father-daughter from the daughter. Um, those kinds of those kinds of stories. So I, I, I try to write what I need also to learn and I'm curious about. And that sort of reminds me of something. I watched your acceptance speech, Lisa, at the Tonys, where you talked about Broadway as being the Broadway community is living in this house, but only really inhabiting one or two rooms and not investigating the rest of the house. Um, I wonder if you could just explain a little bit more about what you mean by that and whether you think uh, Broadway has succeeded in exploring the house in the last five years or so. I grew up in the Midwest. I went to a small Midwestern college. I never graduated. I'm two credits short of graduating. I need to clarify that. <laughs> I know. But I majored in theater. Then I toured as an actor with the National Repertory Company. So anyway, my relationship to theater had that sort of, you know, mainstream view of what it was, who was involved with it. And you might start in a community theater or college, and then it was a continuum leading to Broadway. What happened to me then was that I moved to New York and had the extraordinary life-changing good fortune of stumbling into this lesbian theater collective in the East Village called the Wow Cafe. And I saw this company, the Split Bridges Company, the playwright Paula Vogel talks about uh, every playwright has a God play, which is the play that you see that just breaks your world open and basically fuels you for the rest of your creative life. And for me, seeing Split Bridges 
was that. Then these other people were making work in this, you know, tiny little theater space in the East Village. We were not just culturally invisible, we were literally invisible as a bunch of lesbians to the people around us. And yet, what was going on in that space with people who didn't have formal training, but it was filled with life and connection. And I remember being dressed in costumes literally made of newspaper, doing a dance like the June Taylor dancers on the fourth floor of this building and thinking, nobody on the street knows what's happening here. And in all these little tiny rooms in New York City, magic like this is happening and other people don't know what it is. In fact, those things happening in that, that room, that's where culture is made on the margins and those things trickle up into the mainstream, but the people in the mainstream don't necessarily know or credit that as being where it came from. And do you think those other rooms have been investigated in the, in the years since you won? No, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> no definitely not. <laughs> So I'm interested in uh, the fact that it was Fun Home is this graphic novel by Alison Bechdel and it's her memoir, a family tragicomic, uh, she uh, describes it as. What other particular challenges are developing a musical from that source material, Janine? Because all, apart from the fact that it's a graphic novel, uh, there's no straightforward chronology. Uh, events jump around past, present, um, the whole way through the book. Was that intimidating when you came to transform it into a piece of theatre? Oh, yes. Every musical to me is intimidating because it can go horribly, horribly wrong. And that's why it's wonderful to be on this call with people who um, are part of the process, the collaborators of these amazing actors. I think that one of the reasons why musicals or that, that kind of collaboration can go horribly, horribly wrong is because it's based on this fundamental of understanding the why uh, what Tony Kushner calls the chocolate chewy center um, of of the thing that you're going to return to again and again and again. And if you don't slow down that first process and recognize why you're doing it, uh, it's and sometimes it's it's in an Ellington way. You can't verbalize it. You can't yammer on about it. It's just a feeling that you get. And I I knew and when, when Lisa Crone and I'm so grateful for her. She's changed. There are people who change your life. Lisa Crone's one of them brought this to me and immediately I knew that it, it, it would sing. You know, I can try to be very smart about it, but I just knew it. And, and I also knew it would be very hard because part of it is the visuals are already in. There's a juxtaposition of visual and language. And often when you are uh, doing a musical, there's only the word and then comes the image. And in this, there was both. And sometimes there's dramatic event inside the juxtaposition of those two things. The way that the chapters end, each chapter ends with a juxtaposition of father and daughter askew, each one. So it was just really looking at it and going all the way in to look at it in this micro level and then pulling all the way out to say, what was she working on? This is, this is a labyrinth in that we can't do a labyrinth. What, is the, what does it mean? Why does this song come after this song? What causes that next song? What's the inevitability? Musicals are built on rhythm and inevitability in my belief system. That's what I was taught by George C. Wolfe. And I, it works every time for me. Just explain that a little more, the, what the, rhythm, the rhythm and inevitability. There's a rhythm, right? So it's if you're putting a concert set together, you know that if you play My Cheat and Heart five times in a row, the audience is going to go buy hot dogs. 
So if you if you put something that goes, you know, sort of like this flowy flowy, and then the next one is ta 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 it's the rhythm that awakens you in in the meal, in the acoustic meal, your your ear dances. And so there's that. The inevitability to me is the causality that because A, then B. So if you have an A, A, B, A song, it's not sequential. It's not, I'm going to throw A and then I'm going to throw B. A makes and makes sure that the next A, which makes sure that the next B happens, which if you need a C, it will tell you if it needs that. And you have to do that tedious work all the way through or you end up with a big pile of nothing for me. (laughs) And that inevitability, but combined with not being predictable, because we've also all seen those shows where you sit and watch the first scene and go, oh, I can see where this is going, and or I can see how this song's going to play out. Exactly, and I think what you just said is one of the reasons why they're so slippery, an art form, because of the variables. And there's this beautiful thing that Bernstein talks about in his Norton lectures at Harvard called the violation of expectation. And he does this amazing thing, and you can do it with theatre quite easily, which is you put something which is not Baroque, which means it's very, very tightly built. And he does it with Mozart. And he does it and it's like, here's, it's even. And then it's 16 and 16. But then he plays Mozart as he wrote it, which takes your ear on a journey when you least expect it. So your ear is not filling in, ba-da-da-da-da-da, ba-da-da-da-da-da. He's like, ba-da-da-da-da-da, ba-ba-ba. So it's this idea that, again, the ear has to dance and be surprised. Therefore, you lean in and are compelled because you're not sure what's coming next. But it's inevitable. You're like, oh, of course. So that is hard to do. Right. And kudos to anybody that does it as successfully as as you do in shows like this. I admire them because I'm not doing it anymore. Enjoy that invisible cigarette. You've earned it. Um, So uh, we're going to work through the show uh, from the beginning. But for anyone who's new to the show. Lisa, do you maybe just want to give us a very brief overview to the complete newcomer to Fun Home? What is Fun Home? We adapted a graphic memoir by a woman named Alison Bechtel, who is a cartoonist who for 20 years did a, uh, or more than 20 years, did a a comic strip called Dykes to Watch Out For. And uh, in her 40s, she wrote this uh, graphic novel, which was based on the circumstances of her childhood, which were that um, she had grown up in this small town, Beach Creek in Pennsylvania, and her father was a high school English teacher. Um, He was a a very gifted restorer of historical homes and local architectural historian. And he spent her entire childhood restoring the Gothic revival house that was kind of a wreck when they moved in, and he restored it very gloriously throughout her childhood. And he was also the director of the Bechdel Funeral Home, which was the family business. He had inherited it from his father and his grandfather. So basically the circumstances of the play are that Allison grows up in this family. She goes to college. When she gets to college, she realizes that she's a lesbian. She writes to her parents and tells them that she's a lesbian. She gets some sort of strange responses from them, doesn't hear anything for two weeks, and then her mother reveals to her that her father has been having affairs with young men uh, and older teenage boys for her entire childhood, that he's a closeted gay man. Then the family is sort of in a state of confusion, and four months after she sent that letter, her father stepped in front of a truck and killed himself. So Allison's book is basically her trying to parse through the received narratives of her childhood. So Janine and I looked at that and we said, that sounds like a musical comedy. 
Perfect. <laughs> and, and the and the crucial thing to note is that uh, Alison is played by three actors. So there's, there's small Alison who's about nine. There's medium Alison who's starting college and she's nineteen or so. And then there's adult Alison in the sort of present day who is in her early forties and approaching the age that her father was when he died. And the whole way through the show, we have this kind of conversation between older Alison and her younger selves, trying to sort of re really kind of comprehend uh if that's a word uh her past um and so kaiser do you want to set us up for where we are at the, t- the very start of the show um and what actually happens at the very outset because you're the first person on stage aren't you mm. the start of the show empty stage apart from Alison's writing desk um an adult Alison, now 43 lesbian cartoonist walks on stage goes to a drawing table There's a box next to the drawing table. Um, She rummages around. She finds a set of keys that spark something um, in her mind and she begins to draw. And with that, the music starts and the memories, her memories, all come flooding back to her. And that's when the rest of the the players come on stage. And is it the case that she's setting out that day to investigate the circumstances of her father's life and death or is it more that she's looking for inspiration she comes across this stuff and it's sort of an accidental moment where the the memories are sort of thrust upon her i don't know what what has been said before but i think i always saw it as something that happened in the moment every night that um that sparked that thought process i mean she's clearly reached a point of her life like we said that she's about the same age as her father was when he committed suicide. So uh, all of that is probably coming together in her mind where she's at in her personal life at the moment. But I think the drawing in that being inquisitive and cathartic for her is probably what sparks it all. And that's how I approached it every night. And what's particularly unusual, I mean, there's, there's, I mean we could list a hundred reasons how and why this musical is unusual. You're kind of this, the protagonist. You are the, the central character. And yet a lot of the time you seem to be kind of inside and outside the action that the events that take place on stage are in your past and you're external to that but obviously they're your memories so you're part of them too how did you get your head around that as an actor what was your kind of approach because I, th- I think it's easy to just to, to see her as just in inverted commas a narrator but I think that's exactly what she's not she's I mean we're living it through her and 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 this is her journey so it's not just narrating her life for us it's it's living it with her I felt it was something of a, it's almost like a, an on-stage therapy session or like a voyeuristic kind of detachment until you get to the, to the end where it's, it's like a quiet contemplation that then turns out to be allowing yourself to mourn the death of your father, if that makes sense. It's, it's, that whole journey is, is more of a, a discovery than a narration to me. Right, so the, the trajectory is always forward, even as you're looking back, it's a kind of living, breathing Yeah, process. it's like a little t- treasure hunt almost, through your mind and through <laughs> your memory, what, and different things, sparks different things, and then and all these characters and, and, and memories come to life um, in front of her at the same time as in front of the audience. So you felt like you were on the same discovery as the audience every night. Um, and that's also a challenge for an actor to try and keep it fresh and 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 have those instant discoveries but that's also what what keeps it fun every night so it's not just yeah. standing at the side watching people sing it's actually <laughs> having it's it's actively 
um, discovering them as they pop into your mind. Right. And I think that was that was a a challenge and b also what was fun about doing it. Putting the fun in fun home and and as present day Alison is is going through this box and finding these old things for her fathers uh, in her memory, Bruce. The father is also going through a box of stuff he's got from a, a neighbor's uh, sort of garage sale um, and and going through and sorting out what's junk and what could be restored and what is actually precious. Bruce and Alison sing together, I want to know what's true, dig deep into who and what and why and when. What I think is amazing about that is that there's somehow these two people who are decades apart and on completely different trajectories find this kind of common language, this sort of shared goal, this point of commonality right at the start of the show. Janine, how did you, how did you find that? And was that something that came easily or was it a long journey to find that moment? Lisa Crone and um, I worked so closely together. So I feel like she's in the notes and I'm in some of the words. So it's like we share a head. And, um, and, and so these little decisions also have an inevitability that, for instance, the at the beginning is a major, minor, major chord. And that intellectually is semi-interesting. But the idea of that modality, when you go from major, minor, and you put them right by, there's an uncertainty about it. And I I had it in and I, I, knew, I knew that it was important. And I remember Lisa saying, don't cut that. That's an important thing that uh, don't, you have to use it. And she was absolutely right. And I think inside exposition of musicals, they, they behave very differently often than plays. And I'm really loath to make generalities because I think that that's the way the form uh, grows is that people say, I don't, I didn't even, never even heard of that rule. Mm-hmm. But there is a clarity to storytelling. So if someone mumbles and you say, I- I'm sorry, what? It's because you didn't understand it. And I think in sometimes narrative, there is mumbling in terms of the clarity of storytelling. And when you have an exposition in a musical, to me, is like a Glock sound. Bing. My dad was an antiques. He, he, he also, he was a doctor, but he dealt in antiques. And he had this insatiable knowledge to understand the history of an object, but he had no desire to really delve into the history of his children. He, it was too painful for him. So that, that, that was transferred and amplified into the investigation of history of things. And she, at the same time, is holding the very things that she learned about, the artistry that he taught her with which to see them, but is also desperate and burdened by trying to understand what was so that she can continue. So they're both searching for truth, but his truth is a kind of way of avoiding the human introspection. Um, He's putting his energy into something outside of himself, where she's looking for something in that family interpersonal connection. Uh, so after this opening number in which small Alison has been trying to get her dad to play with her, it, it finishes with this rare moment of connection where they play airplane together. And the next thing that happens is that we learn that a lady from the local historical society is on her way to look at the house. And the mum, Helen, takes charge of preparations. So Jenna, uh, do you want to tell us a bit about the family dynamic here? How does this family work? And How do you, as Helen, manage that group? It's not really gone into in the beginning of the show quite how volatile he is with her father because we've got to want to receive stuff from him. So shutting him down as a difficult character to begin with doesn't help anybody. 
but you get the feeling that the work the world that they live in is a very ordered world in order to make things work for the father in the correct way so that song is just a way of i think showing like the tempo Janine, you were always talking about that how she's on her track this is what we have to do the woman's coming round got to make everything perfect so nothing he he won't get upset he 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 won't see fault in these things then we'll all get through it okay and how she manages to engineer it that the children or who obviously are aware that they've got to keep everything just perfect to join in on this uh, expedition I mean I'm sure we've all got people in our families that you have to do make those kind of exceptions for uh, you know people that you placate and just make sure everything's just right for them so they can function properly and I think that's what's happening in that song right it's the whole family accommodating his um, his sort of volatility and eccentricities. But you don't, you never, the clever thing about the song is you don't quite, you know, he wants, what does he want? He wants this, he wants that, but nobody's saying what he really wants. Most of all, Bruce, you know, it's 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 clever on many different levels. Right, it, and it's a spin on, a lot of musicals have an I want song, yeah. a second song in, which, where the protagonist announce, announces what they want and what they're going to search for in the course of the musical. And here it's the other character singing about what he wants. But of course, this is what he wants on a kind of manageable physical level. Yeah. And, and I guess the whole thing really is a quest to find out well, what did he want? And one of the things that's fascinating and beguiling about the graphic novel and the musical is that it keeps coming at that question, which is inevitably unanswerable because the, the guy is dead and he maybe never knew himself because he never you know like, do, do we ever know what we really want and and it's kind of interesting that we're the show is full of people discussing wants um but i don't think we really ever discover what bruce wants on a deeper level do we and and there is this one thing I'm worth mentioning in this song as well, which is the refrain of "Welcome to our house on Maple Avenue," which is a theme that recurs. What do you think that song, that kind of refrain, is for uh, Helen and the family, Jenna? Oh, it means I think lots of different things at different times, isn't it? They were very um, well regarded in the community they lived in. You know, from the outside, were perfect mother and a father she was a teacher and he ran this you know the the funeral home and you know they were highly regarded in in society three fabulous children and a beautiful home but you know what goes on behind closed doors you know welcome to our house on maple avenue is like the 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 perfect picture postcard family i mean every every family's got a story um, I remember my mum, she, when she came to see it, <laughs> I'm going off kilter a bit here. But no, please do. I, I remember her saying, but nothing, nothing, she loved it, by the way, <laughs> but she said, but, it, you know, nothing really happened. I said, yeah, but that's the beauty of it. I mean, something big did happen, but no, the world didn't alter and, and Alison didn't have, uh, like, a massive change and then she decided to do X, Y and Z. It's... Every family has a story. Every family has secrets. Some of them are darker. And, and that's what I loved about this show, that examining of your memories of your childhood. We all do it where we think, was that true? I don't know. Or maybe I'm remembering <laughs> it wrong. But you don't ask your mum, did that happen? And the whole journey of Alison kind of going, did he leave me in the apartment in New York? All those things. I just think it's so, it's such a delicate, beautiful thing that is really common 
with all of us that we all have those moments about our childhood. Little earthquakes, aren't they? They're all little earthquakes. Yeah. And I think this shows about a massive earthquake, but in the scheme of the world, it's a little earthquake. It's one man's quiet struggle with himself and the consequences to his family of his struggle. Right, and there's a line that I love in the graphic novel, which is, Dad's death was not a new catastrophe, but one that had been unfolding very slowly for a long time. And it's like, we know we know that he dies. That was announced very early on in proceedings. The whole journey is going, well, what, now I look back, can I see some of those tremors before the earthquake? Um, and what you said there reminded me, I love that moment after uh, the kids... Uh, emerge from the coffin, from the casket, and seeing uh, come to the fun home, their kind of funeral home advert, which is this joyous uh, kind of pop sort of disco number. Um, that's in that moment of joy is interrupted by uh, Bruce saying, "Alison, can you come and pass me the scissors?" And she sees her first dead body, and there's a corpse being embalmed, and she's like nine years old, and she she questions doesn't she what um you know what was that about dad was it was, were you, was it about the dead body did you even see that and i guess those it happens quite a lot in the, in this doesn't it lisa there are question after question and they're open-ended do you think that she'd had that memory and had a certain narrative in her mind and only now she's re-looking at it or is it that she's just approaching that memory and it's come to her fresh in that moment I, I think Jenna's mother's comment is very astute, and it was the challenge of writing this. You know, the book is essentially a recursive personal essay. Uh, and the question was, how do you dramatize that? There is no narrative in the book. There, there are no characters in the book in theatrical terms, and there's no action. And in fact, in her childhood, nothing happened. He was living a lie successfully. And then there were four months where a lot of things happened, Dram dramatic things happening, meaning something happens and then it changes everything. She realized she's lesbian, she comes out. So that, that's a total change in her sense of self. She tells her family, so that changes the character of her family. She finds out that her father has been in the closet, total change, then her father kills himself. Again, a series of actions and consequences. Then nothing happens for 20 years. Then, as we have posited it, and it took us a long time to get to this, you know, you have to have an inciting incident. What is the inciting incident for her to decide she's going to open this up and look back at the received narratives about her family and parse through them? She's turning the age that she was when her father killed himself. And I think for people who have lost a parent traumatically, that is a moment of, of some kind of reckoning. So that's what's happening. We're inside Allison's mind, and she is, as an artist, also as a daughter, but driven by the, the artistic impulse. I mean, you, you pulled out those lyrics, I want to know what's true, dig deep into who and what and why and when. That's an artistic drive in her to do that. And as you said, for her, that's about going wherever it takes her, even if it unsettles everything she knows about the world, as opposed to for her father, where that's about keeping the surface of everything sealed and beautiful. What we also wanted to get at, you know, it's a journey through the artistic process, which was our process making it, which is that you're like, okay, I see, I'm going to stand outside and I'm going to make this thing. But if you could make the thing from where you stand when you start, you wouldn't need to make it. <laughs> and to get there, you're going to be transformed yourself. You're going to have to dismantle a bunch of th You're just going to have to. And it's the crazy thing, you know, where 
you know, one of the things we came up against is that we had it in an early version. We had, we showed Allison like in her studio doing things and, and it didn't work because when you're making art, you feel like it could kill you, but it can't kill you. So the audience is like, then stop making the art. (laughs) But behind that, the, the driving impulse is something that people can relate to. So we took it out of a sort of realistic expression and stepped back so that, you know, everything that happens is that she thinks, she remembers, and she draws. And you cannot see any of those things on stage. So in making it, the thing was, how do we, how do we put those things on stage? So, you know, you can recall memories, but also memories come to you. And so some of the things she is thinking, she's like, let me think about this. And then things come to her, you know, and they will, things that will unsettle her idea about her father in ways that are terrifying to her and that she then has to grapple with. And that's what we're watching. That's the action of the piece. So medium Alison is at college. She started off having a bit of a tough time. She's rung home and told her parents she's not really meeting the people uh, that she thought she would meet she's not settled in brilliantly well but then she attempts to go to the gay union trying to will herself to walk through the door but panics initially um meanwhile back at the fun home we see bruce have an sort of encounter with this guy who comes to do the yard work roy who comes in and they're having this very sort of intimate scene and they're drinking sherry or port or something and meanwhile Helen is in the next room playing piano if you're not familiar as a listener uh, we're going to talk about diegetic music and non-diegetic music so diegetic um, it's the naturalistic music that would happen in a scene like a radio playing somebody playing piano that is music that the characters would all hear even if this were a quote-unquote naturalistic play uh, non-diegetic music being music that belongs to the world of the imagination the music in Jaws going dun 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 so this song starts with Helen playing the piano. It's diegetic music. It's part of the scene. But there's this sort of magical thing that happens a number of times in this show where it kind of melds into being somewhere inside her head. Jenna, do you want to talk a little bit about this scene of playing the piano and what Helen knows, if anything, about what's going on in the next door room? It's so interesting because playing Helen was such a... And I guess it is for all the actresses who've played the role and will play the role... She's always in the background and in the in the graphic novels she's kind of like this distant figure you know like what 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 was she what was she doing in this action and her piano playing is kind of her place of calm her place of order to do something beautiful for herself something quiet for herself but i guess it's her thinking time as well you know it's it's like me doing my subversive cross stitch isn't <laughs> yeah. it i i can just just concentrate on that one thing and i can take stuff in i'm filtering stuff while i'm doing it but i'm concentrated on something and yeah so so helen i think she knows what's going on you know she trips over with the music that she's playing that she's practicing the scale she's practicing but she doesn't say anything of course she doesn't i mean she doesn't <laughs> well, so why doesn't she I'm, I'm interested by this why because it's easy to look at it and go well obviously he's got some inappropriate relationships going on with these boys she must know that he's not being faithful and this is like some troubling behavior why doesn't she just leave i love that you said that because one of our younger cast members said that in a rehearsal once i remember i think you were there janine were you there mm-hmm. when uh, yeah mm-hmm. and it's you know i'm i'm in my early 50s now and when my parents divorced it it was 
a great thing to happen for them because they needed to do it and great for me, but it was still frowned upon and that that wasn't that long ago. The time when this play, when, when they were together, they were living in a small town in America. There's no way that this very highly regarded couple, if she le- left, left, where would she go with her three children or would she leave on her own? Their reputation would go down the drain. There was There's too much at stake to walk away and I think you just bear it, don't you? You bear it. And that's that's Helen's journey of when when will she step in and go, okay, this is this is it from hi, this is it from my point of view. Let me now speak, because I've been quiet for a long time. And it was beautiful actually how how Sam would always have Helen dimly lit in a corner somewhere folding clothes or sewing or she was there but not there and I think it is a wonderful thing to have that going on on stage because you go what what about why isn't this person going excuse me um do not speak to our child because people don't do they you don't you know it's the um, death of a thousand cuts there's all these little things that it just builds up builds up builds up teeny tiny little mountains are made and then the world changes and and you open your mouth and and tell the truth from your point of view and life is never the same right and so her singing maybe not right now is is the, the thinking of like am i gonna confront this is is that is that yeah, but also the realization of not i'm not gonna do it yeah the bit that always got me is and i think it's so beautifully written Lisa the moment when he, the father talks to the daughter about art it still makes me it chokes me up when he when he corrects her work as an artist when she's nine years old and the mother kind of goes um and he's so full of rage and jealousy and all the things that he is because she's brilliant but he can't cope with it and she needs his approval and the, the mother is realizing that he's he shouldn't be doing that but she can't deal with him all the quiet surrenders that we all make the little snip you know the snip that he cuts her so badly with how he behaves to that child and damages something very precious in her but it's just done it's a little explosion and then it's done but you know Alison remembers it forever and when I read the script that was the bit that really and you could hear it sometimes in the audience. You could hear them go, oh, and it's such a, that's the beauty of this show. It's all built on the quiet little betrayals that when you add mm. them all up are devastating. But there's one, an example, you know, clipping your child's wings. Yeah. Jenna, you're absolutely right. Um, Helen is not a victim. No. And And I think that it's really worth saying that inside the time poverty of, of, a, of a woman... This is an American woman, and I think the history, this is my mother. I don't know if it's Lisa's mother, because I don't want to speak for her. This is my mother. My mother got tremendous payoff by our incredibly violent, complicated, joyful, intellectual, horrific household. And the idea of tasks and what language is and isn't available to people also comes with a series of payoffs and a deep love and regard for each other. So I think it's, it is a complicated 
story to tell because I, I remember and have a deep memory of all versions of these things. And Lisa and I have talked about this play is so painful for me and wonderful for me because it's filled with Lisa and me and Allison. It's, I feel like it's our stories so because we use them also as inventory to think about. And when I went to my mother at nine and said, I would like to negotiate, this is a true story, your divorce. <laughs> and it seems funny now, but I was serious and I had a pen and I had a pad and went to my father to negotiate their divorce because it was horrific what was happening. And she turned to me and said, where will we go? And, and that's when I put my pad and paper away. So I think there is that idea of, and we worked really hard that Days and Days is not a pity song. It's a song of of her parenting and gifting something so that's an activation of something at the end of the day. You know, we asked ourselves about why Helen stays. Helen stays because she stays. While we're on the subject, let's hear the song that Helen sings about her marriage. It comes quite near the end of the show when Alison's home from college on a visit with Joan. Bruce's behaviour has become increasingly erratic and Helen finally opens up to her daughter about the nature of the marriage. This is an exclusive recording we made earlier this week with me on the piano and Jenna Russell revisiting the role she played in the 2018 London production of Fun Home. This is Days and Days. Welcome to our house on Maple Avenue See how we polish and we shine We rearrange and realign Everything is balanced and And Days and days and days That's how it happens Days and days and days Made of lunches and car rides and shirts and socks And grades and piano and no one clocks The day you disappear Days and days and days, that's how it happens Days and days and days Made of posing and bragging and fits of rage And boys, my God, some of them underage And oh, how did it all happen here? There was a time your father swept me off my feet with words We read books, strolled through Munich at night Drank beer with friends, discussed the places we would go And he said I understood How the world made him ache But no But no That's how it happens Days made of bargains I made Because I thought as a wife I was meant to And now my life is shattered and laid bare Days and days and days and days And days and days and days Welcome to our house on Maple Avenue See how we polish and we shine We rearrange and realign 
Come back here. I didn't raise you to give away your days like me. Yes, Jenna. Oh, Jenna. <laughs> oh, bring me right back. Oh, thank you. Mm. That bit, that bit at the end, always kills me. What a brilliant thing she says to her child. I mean, as a mum, to say that, please go, yeah. spread your wings. Don't stay here. I've raised you to mm. be big and strong. Go. Because it reframes it as a as a sort of sacrificial thing, like I have done this for you, and I am protecting you. And, and what I love is that the whole song is slightly oblique that you know the the it of the first verse isn't totally clear that's how it happens it's all kind of gestured towards that erasure of self it's almost like she's lost in her world and then at the end it's like i'm talking to you kids yeah don't turn into me (laughs) this is it this is what happens yeah you will find yourself erased oh you sing it so beautifully and and when we started recording that jenna was like oh i can't really sing anymore i haven't done this singing for ages and i i I sound like an old lady oh my gosh (laughs) but she lies you sound incredible oh, as think, soon as you. you're upset I was like oh my god I, I also I just haven't heard singing in so long you know it makes me want to just go to sleep and dream <laughs> not go to sleep and give up but sleep and just like what what should I write next mm-hmm. and that I have not felt in three months oh great thank you <laughs> I, I think also uh, I mean Jenna you played this so extraordinarily Helen is also an artist. Helen is an actor. And the thing she sings in the middle of days is about when they got together. Mm -hmm. So he has this incredible artist soul. You know, in the book, there's all kinds of things in the book that we couldn't put in, and they're all their love letters to each other, where they imagine themselves um, as Scott Fitzgerald and Zelda. Yeah. You know, that they had this very romantic sense of themselves. And, you know, part of the family myth is that he is this rarefied artist soul and she is also an artist so they see that about each other in this and and in that town we had a lot of people from beach creek come to see the show and they would be like you know we remember how beautiful that house was and the parties at the house and what that family was like and the and what he was like as a teacher you know his students came to see the show and talked about how he talked about literature and and she as well you know she was incredibly intelligent uh, talented, you know, she had studied with Uta Hagen in New York, and um, and she was famous in that town as you know, as in many community theaters. There's the one person who's just like, oh my God, that's an actress, and that was Helen Bechtel. And so I think that their relationship is also built on that, that they see each other, and then in terms of the the idea that he is the tortured artist. She has an investment. You know, I think that's one of the things that is in and that you played so beautifully in He Wants, Jenna. He's losing it, and I need to prop him up because he's a mess because he's got this artist soul, and I have it. This is our connection. You know, Janine really, really pushed me on this when we were writing it. Like, what is the specificity about this character? Indeed, as you say, Jenna, like there's all kinds of societal price to pay that's higher than it is now about leaving and then within that, is there something more specific in that repressive household? What do we give people to play that is 
towards something rather than pushing against something. Like you say, there was a lot of love there between them. They, you know, it was complicated love, but it was love nonetheless. Mm-hmm. You know, she, after after Bruce died, she remarried. But am I right in thinking, I'm not making this the me, me with my memory, <laughs> she, she was buried with him, yeah. Because they did divorce, didn't they? Uh, they were about to. They were going to. They were about she to. She told him she's going to leave. Of course, then he died. Okay, but we're going to motor on now to the piece by piece fun home quiz. Um, just for a bit of a bit of uh, a light diversion. So, um, <laughs> as previously explained, um, I've not made these necessarily directly about the show, uh, given that Lisa and Janine would have an unfair advantage uh, on the rest <laughs> of us. But uh, so these are all approaching fun home from some some related angles. Here we go. You've all got um, a little buzzer noise. So can I just check what, what sound or noise are you going to make, Kaiser? Caption. Caption. Perfect. Jenna, what are you going to do? Mind blank. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Graceful. I love it. Fantastic. Lisa, what are you going to do? You're listening to this at home as a podcast, you will not appreciate that Lisa and Janine have matching glow-in-the-dark tambourines, which may be my favourite thing I've ever seen. Okay, uh, the first question is actually multiple choice, so you don't need to buzz in. I will ask you for your answers. The Bechtel test is named after Alison Bechtel and measures female representation in works of art. To pass, a film or play has to have at least two female characters who talk to each other about something other than a man. In the quarter century, 1992 to 2016, what percentage of the 84 Broadway musicals surveyed passed the Bechdel test? Was it A, 22%, B, 42%, C, 62%, or D, 82%? What do you think, Kaiser? I'm going to go pretty low, because that's the kind of Swedish cynic that I am. You're going to go A, 22? Yeah. That's cool. Jenna, what about you? I was going to say 22 as well. Lisa? 22, I'm going to guess. Janine? Uh, let me just say B, just because. And just because we'll get you a point, because it's actually 42%. There were oh. 35 of the 84 that passed the test. Uh, but what's interesting is that that hasn't actually really changed a huge deal over time. In 1942 to 1966, it was it was around about 31%. I want to point out that people have said to me that Fun Home does not test, pass the Bechdel test because she's always in relationship to Bruce. She's always talking about But what about, about the, what about this with Joan? What about that? Because that whole scene is about... I, get, I don't know. I haven't... I, I'm like... I, whatever with that. I, I mean, I'm like, a, what's your point, really? What's your point? So I haven't actually analysed it. Well, well, we'll do some research and find out afterwards. But I think it's a special case. It's, it's all about Bechtel. That would be ironic. Uh, number two. Uh, which writing duo were the last all-female team before Crone and Tesori to be nominated for Best Book and Score of a Musical at the Tonys? Janine. Secret Garden? It was Secret Garden, Marsha Norman and Lucy Simon in 1991. I was the associate conductor on that. Yay! Yay! Amazing. Uh, number three, in which memory-focused uh, musical would you find this lyric? You take one road, you try one door, there isn't time for any more, one's life consists of either or. Don't know. Not a clue. Yeah. Shocking, shocking. Jenna Russell, you've been in the show, I'm almost certain. But it's definitely Sondheim, right? It's Sondheim. It's, it's The Road You Didn't Take in Follies. Uh, ah. Hang on. Was that, was that in the 86 production, though? Oh, because oh, they messed around with it a lot over here, didn't they? Jenna for the win. That was the one I was in, and I don't think it was in that show. You did Follies with a happy ending, didn't you? Yeah, well, it didn't seem terribly happy. <laughs> <laughs> Julie McKenzie lying on the floor 
screaming as her life was over. It felt quite, it felt dark when I was 20. (laughs) (laughs) It's just a Wednesday in here. Anyway, we could talk about Follies for a long time. That's a different show. Uh, So uh, number four, which memory musical features the song What Happened to the Old Days? Caption. Caption, Kaiser. Caption, is it Chicago? Oh, you're so close. You're so close. In the right lines, right composers. Cabaret? No, no, it's The Rink. Ah, I was going to say it's Cheetah Rivera. I saw The Rink. Did you? Did you see the original? Oh, I will never forget seeing Liza Minnelli enter in an army coat. (laughs) I've never forgotten that in my life. She entered and I'd never, like, I had one of those army coats. That was a thing in the 70s, early 80s you wore. And that's what she wore. And... Yeah. Anyway, I enjoyed that diversion. But we are question five of the quiz. Um, in a rare uh, Broadway musical with a lesbian relationship at, at its heart, there is uh, a duet in The Colour Purple sung by Celia and Shug at the end of Act One. What is the name of that female duet? Anybody know? What about love? What about love? <laughs> but I had to search so hard to find any musicals with a with a single lesbian character. I mean, the the, the few that there are, are are like tiny supporting roles, and they're usually the butt of the joke. They are so few and far between. Um, these next few are about Pennsylvania. Uh, so, fun home is in Pennsylvania, um, and I discovered that Pennsylvania has a number of towns with unusual or surprising names. Which of these is not a town in Pennsylvania? Is it A? Cheese Town, B, Intercourse, C, Climax, D, Nowhere. Three of those are Pennsylvania towns. One is not. Which one do you think is the outlier? Janine. I think it's Cheese Town. You think it's Cheese Town? What are you going to go for, Lisa? Well, it's either Cheese Town or Nowhere. Uh, you know, I'll go for Nowhere. Okay, Kaita. I want to be just like Lisa when I grow up, so I'm going to go for nowhere too. <laughs> and what about you, Jenna? I thought it was Cheese Town. Uh, the actual answer is uh, nowhere. Uh, the, nowhere. Nowhere is a town in Oklahoma. Uh, so a point goes to Kaiser and Lisa. Cheese Town, of course, and Climax are real towns. Uh, which Pennsylvania set musical premiered at London's Old Vic in 2016 before it ran on Broadway in 2017? <laughs> Jenna Russell. This is a guess. Is it Groundhog Day? Absolutely right. Set in Punxsutawney, PA. Uh, number eight. Which song features the immortal line, pencils come from Pennsylvania? Oh, um... Janine. Is, is, oh, is that Ro- Rosewater? Is, is it Alan Menken? No. Oh, no, that's not it. But I love that song and I can't remember where it's from. It's one of my favourite songs and no one ever knows it. It's Rhode Island is famous for you. It's uh, The lyric is, pencils come from Pennsylvania, vests from West Virginia, and tents from Tennessee. It's a list song. Yeah. And the punchline is, the hook is, Rhode Island is famous for you. It's about this little state and you're the, you're the export. And what's it from? It's from a Dietz and Schwartz uh, review show from 1948 called Inside USA. Tony Kushner sang that to me and that's how I, 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 I remember it. When my daughter went to Brown and he's like, oh, here's the greatest Rhode Island song and he sang the whole right. thing from memory. Because that's how his brain works. Right. And whenever I meet someone from Pennsylvania, I always, I'm like, amazing, pencils come from Pennsylvania. And they look at me like I'm absolutely off the hook. Um, 
Okay, the last four questions. These are corrupted song titles from Fun Home. So we've taken four songs from Fun Home and changed one letter or sound of the song title, entirely changing its meaning. The following clues are descriptions of the new corrupted song title. For instance, if we were doing Guys and Dolls uh, and the clue were Waterfowl Behave Like a Woman, the answer would be Duck be a lady. Like the Times cryptic not password. even noon here, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> Number nine, renewing my small telecommunications device. Oh no, I think I know the answer, but I, I've got to do some witty pun with it or something. No. Charging my major? Oh, it's so close. It's so close. Renewing my small telecommunications device. It's the right song. It's changing my pager. Changing um, my pager. Who has a pager now? Nobody! There, there's a whole generation of people who have no idea what that is. Uh, number 10. A swarm of flying insects in a circular formation. Give us a song clip. It is uh, a song sung by Small Allison. Ring of Bees. Ring of Bees. Ah. Absolutely right. Last two. Number 11, the harp-like instrument being played while I'm kept on hold. The harp-like instrument being played while I'm kept on hold. Lute busy? There's <laughs> <laughs> a song from the, towards the end of the show sung by grown-up Alison. I'm going to time you out. The answer is telephone liar. L-Y-R-E. And uh, the final one, number 12, an international celebration of shrubs. International world. I just look at the titles of the songs. This is crazy. Like, how could we not be able to just do this from process of elimination? Hedges of the world. Hedges of the world. We got there. Point to Lisa. Superb. Wow. And so at the end of that very exciting experience, the winner of the quiz is Janine Tesori. Yeah. I know, I know. How does that rank compared to your Tony wins? Well, I have to say, just being on this call is, is a win for me. Oh, say all the right things. That brings us to the end of part one of Piece by Piece, Fun Home. Do join us for part two, where amongst other things, you'll get to hear Kaiser Hamelin in song. Thank you for joining us. That's the end of Fun Home Part 1. But don't worry, there's more conversation and music to come in our next episode. Do join us for Fun Home Part 2. We would love to hear what you think about Piece by Piece. Don't forget you can email us, piecebypiecetalkshow at gmail.com and you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at pvp underscore podcast or on Facebook at Piece by Piece Podcast. Piece by Piece Fun Home was recorded remotely by Joe and Nikki Davison for Auburn Dam Music. Our guests were Kaiser Hammerland, Lisa Crone, Jenna Russell and Janine Tesori. Our theme music is by Ben Cobbs and our production assistant is Olivia Dowden. Piece by Piece is devised and presented by Joe Bunker and produced by Pint of Wine. Thank you for listening to Piece by Piece. Do join us again.